in today's society, uh, what we have basically, what I, I believe anyway, is, is due to like pressures of crowding overpopulation and such, we have a neurotic society that uses drugs of one form or another to escape from this pressure of being close together. And at rock concerts is one of the places where people are very close together. So they use drugs. I mean, this is not the exception to the rule. They don't only use it here. I mean, that's why there are drug abuse clinics, basically, because it's out in the street. But what we're trying to do here is to deal with it. What we used to do, if someone just passed out during the show, uh, all we could do is put them in the back of, of a car or call an ambulance and send them down to the hospital, where they were kept for a couple of hours, treated, gone through a whole bunch of bureaucratic red tape, and then let out to do what they can. Now, since the people are here, the, the, the kids that come here have grown accustomed to the clinic being here, and they're able to take care of people and people who aren't able to control themselves. And, so, and it's not only drugs. There's a lot of cases of, you know, heat prostration and, you know, just people who are, aren't well physically, who put themselves in a crowded environment, become overcome by it, and they're able to treat them. And uh, the biggest thing I can say is nobody dies. Nobody dies. Hello and welcome to Red Medicine, a new podcast where I'll be interviewing various guests about the social and political contexts of medicine, wellness and health. To start the series off, I'll be speaking with Matt Ingram, who's the author of Retreat, How the Counterculture Invented Wellness, which was published by Repeater Books in December. Matt's book is a comprehensive social history of the experimentations in health and wellness that permeated the broader period of experimentation known as the counterculture. In the following discussion, I ask him about the commodification of Eastern religions, the potential limitations of psychedelics, and the complex array of therapies that shaped the counterculture. If you enjoy the discussion, make sure you stay to the end, where I'll explain some of the ways you can support the podcast and some of the forthcoming guests that will be appearing. Matt, could you start us off by explaining what you're referring to with the term counterculture? Because people do contest what that term includes and doesn't include. I mean, I think with the book, I I focus on the beat era and the hippie era. And for me, someone like Ginsberg, who straddles both, that was the way to sort of bind it all together. In terms of the time, I did it, I dated it from... Ginsburg reading Howell, this is about 1956, to Ginsburg being thrown off the um, Rolling Thunder tour while he was demoted. And that was almost like Bob Dylan had this kind of love affair with, with, with everything that Ginsburg represented, which was essentially the counterculture. And I think that moment when, in the Rolling Thunder tour, when um, Bob Dylan decided that having Alan reciting poetry was a turnoff, was a kind of a sort of, sort of, moment which you can date the sort of shift of the you know as a, as a mass movement so that's about i think 1975 i think or 76 so so that's the window i took in terms of the time yeah and as you write in the book you your interest in the counterculture began with music yeah um can you explain how you arrived at questions surrounding health and wellness yeah well specifically finding elements that I'd counted through music that, that were obviously related to health. So the, um, the Beatles um, interest in transcendental meditation and then 
obviously LSD was a huge thing in the music and obviously that came from a psychiatric background um so there was another one and then I sort of noticed the macrobiotic food um which was another thing that was a sort of the hippie diet but there was a whole string of them that were um that, that I noticed through music and then realized that I could put them all together and were people thinking about their experimentations using terms like health and wellness at the time or is this something that only becomes apparent in hindsight no it's a great it's a very good question and, and the answer is that it really wasn't thought of at all um, and that was why that was a fun thing about the book is that there's lots of excellent writing on you know for instance you know feminism and the 60s or even computing and then the counterculture or you know all manner of these things and but there nobody would actually put all health things together and that, that probably partly was because at the time people didn't think of all of those disciplines as necessarily being related or they weren't specific about them relating to health. I mean, in a a very real sense, they were interested in was spirituality. And that was actually the thread that connects a lot of the health things, which I, I wasn't remotely aware of until I started digging into it. So, so in fact, I could the book could almost be subtitled about you know spirituality and the uh, counterculture. Um, I got the sense reading the book that you're pushing back a little bit against the idea that the counterculture was uh, a failure in some way, um, and I wanted to ask if you think that the counterculture altered conceptions of health and wellness in a kind of broadly productive way. I think in a way that these are, you know, the useful states, uh, useful periods in history. In a way, I feel quite sort of non-judgmental about the whole thing. I just think it's like, you know, the temptation is for a certain, you know, section of society, for instance, people who are interested in psychedelics, just to view those states as, you know, inherently positive. And then you have a sort of more conservative, typically a more conservative view, which sees them as being destructive. You know, when you have, for instance... I think, I'm not even sure exactly. I think it was, uh, it might have been Thatcher or maybe it was even Blair blaming, um, you know, the sexual health crisis on, you know, the, the 60s. I don't know. I don't, I don't think I really see it. And I certainly don't see it as, in, as inherently positive because it's just ego dissolution. It's like you can have that as a negative experience. You can, that can be a negative experience. For instance, someone like Manson or, or I think Leary, I think it's just, basically quite a negative situation or you know you can you can draw something from it you can do it in a way and, and it can be positive so you know i i guess i'm I, i'm i'm more sort of open to you know it being one or the other really um another common interpretation um of what the counterculture did or what happened to the counterculture um is that a lot of the activities or modalities that were popularised have now just been co-opted by corporate culture. And, you know, I find it quite interesting how different contexts can alter uh, what different activities mean or are doing. Um, I mean, is it an oversimplification to say that the kind of uh, trends of the counterculture have been captured by capital or or is that mostly accurate? I mean, I, I guess I've sort of vacillated a little bit, but I think really... Yeah, I think it is It is fair enough. I think the problem is, is the idea that, for instance, meditation, I mean, I split meditation into two camps, which is on the one hand, you have the etheric meditation. So where you're you know, asked to focus on a single point or where you repeat a mantra. And then 
there's the mindfulness tradition where you you actually focus on your body and your sensations in your body and your breathing and your presence i mean i see that as, a, as an integral thing but certainly the etheric strand of of meditation is there's nothing um you, you couldn't attach anything well in fact really either of them you couldn't essentially attach anything ethical or moral to to the practice of them and that that's the problem is that i mean with 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 the more integral with the mindfulness when it comes out of buddhism if it, it when it's connected in buddhism to you know you know the bodhisattva ideal or, or those ethical foundations of buddhism it does work as a package you know because when you are mindfully meditating you are aware of your emotions you can see you can see and feel pain and that i think as sort of daily goes on tonight i think that that leads to an examination of of your feelings and i think that any sort of um you know examination of cause and effect with regards to your emotions and your and your physical state will tend to lead you to be ethical if you're understanding it in those terms certainly in buddhism it's all wrapped up in this parcel but if you take it out of that you you, you do get you can get the condition where people figure out for themselves you know that 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 in the practice of of mindfulness you know you you could if you were sensitive enough you could you could you could figure out that you could put together you know your behavior and the effect that you have on other people but um it's not an automatic given and it's it's very it's been very easy to break that connection it, it doesn't you know it doesn't necessarily you know it doesn't necessarily you know it has that's so the link has been broken and i don't think it helps as well that the etheric strain is is mixed up with it people don't you know you if you download a mindfulness app you'll you'll be you'll be doing both forms of meditation which are very different in my view so so yeah i think i think the capitalism to want of a better word has taken those methods and used take them out of context and use them to create you know more you know effective shiny cogs some people using the mindfulness strand i think would be able to put a and put one and one together and come up with two and and, and start living more ethically but i don't think it's a given just to pick up on that turn of phrase there of um shiny cogs there's a lot of writing in the book about therapy and psychiatry um and one of the anxieties that runs through the radical psychiatry movement and i think is you know quite a prominent question at the moment um is the idea that uh, something like therapy or the various different types of therapies um are simply there to make you a shinier cog or more accepting of circumstances rather than uh, wanting to change them necessarily i mean that there is that i mean there's always there's it depends on what what therapy you you're going to but yeah there's absolutely that that anxiety for for people going into therapy for you know on a number of a number of reasons and i don't i don't think people should worry but then i guess i take a more generally you know general view that it, you know it's more about what you do um you know it's more about your rather than what you broadcast to the world that you're doing it's more about you know the, the choices that you make you know recycling or you know trying to be a good neighbor or, or whatever 
But I know that, for instance, something like CBT on the surface, it might, as a, as a form of therapy, might might play more into that to that sort of capitalist game where you're not you're asking to inquire about the problems that you know your behavior is causing and but obviously other strands of therapy um are more um have a stronger you know ethical dimension i mean i'm a big a massive fan of adler and for me uh, reading read a lot of freud jung and reich when i was writing the book um, and a little bit, and, and then sort of followed that through, and come across a bit of Adler in, in Ellenberger. But Adler's view, and and this is you can this is you can find this in Jung, and you can find this in Freud, which is that. And I, whenever I say this, uh, people tend to sort of glaze over. But but that your ethical behaviour and, and how you cooperate with people in a constructive way in society, I mean that's the best thing that you could do for your mental health, essentially. So that. Adler sees being constructive, sociable, basically compassionate person is going to do more for your health than anything else. So, for instance, if you were having a, a you know, a, any kind of therapy that, that took any sort of made any lip service to that sort of thing, then you shouldn't have to worry as a socialist or as someone left leaning entering therapy, because just because you're entering therapy, you know, it might actually be something that teaches you to relate to other people you know in a kinder more compassionate way yeah just returning briefly to that question of uh, co-option um, another I mean perhaps harsher critique of what took place in that era um, was that actually it kind of facilitated uh, a turning away from political mobilization uh, towards a more kind of individualist framework of change or even a you know, even a consumerist framework. Um, and this isn't a position that I necessarily agree with, but I, th- I think it's an interesting challenge to explore. Yeah, I think it's fair enough. I mean, I, it's easy to look, especially at these Eastern modalities and, and think that there's something, in, you know, inherently sort of you know, hippy-dippy to the, or, you know, or peace and loving about the things that, that, that come through them. Uh, into you know into the counterculture i think that it's it's i think it's fair enough to say that it created a lot of selfish people those experiences those sort of those experiences of ego dissolution there's a lot to handle there you know there's a lot to process and i think really what tended to happen was that people would take lsd and then just not really tackle the things that it brought up and i think that i think that the reaction I think there was a sort of a, a not not coming to terms with something because you know the, the you know the gauntlet thrown down by those experiences is is so large. I mean, you know, how many lifetimes have you have, have we got to be able to process all this stuff? You know, and I and I do think that inherently those experiences of, of ego dissolution they don't they don't automatically lend you to uh, you know an ethical place. I mean, for instance. You know, Zizek, I think, makes a lot of hay um, with someone like D.T. Suzuki, who is the uh, he has a, he makes a lot of hay with with Suzuki's seemingly unethical um, pronouncements about, you know, supporting the, the Japanese imperialism and how Buddhism was, you know, used as a way to encourage warfare. But the thing is, I mean, that current exists in Eastern thought right the way through. I mean, something like the Bhagavad Gita is written, 
you know, with Juno on talking to Lord Krishna on the battleground, basically Krishna says to Arjuna, yeah, you've got to go and fight and you've got to go and kill all those people. You know, the, 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 the idea that these idea that these principles that are behind the countercultural thought is basically just a, a wholesale borrowing of Eastern thought in many respects. The idea that they're inherently ethical, you know, it's just not true. And so to say that, well, hang on, all these people are meditating, you know, surely people are supposed to be, you know, peace and love. And what's all that about? You know, it's, it's surely it's a contradiction. But I don't think it is a contradiction. I just think it's just with something like a, rel- a religion like Buddhism, you're talking about something that, that has got that ethics baked in. It's it's like, it's like, okay, we, we, we as the Bodhisattva, he experiences the dissolution and then he comes back to earth to help other people but that's relatively unique in in a lot of the you know the the dao the dao doesn't have it particularly um and it's not in really it's not really in the theravada it's not in the vedanta i mean the vedanta is very much can be quite selfish so 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 my view is that to say that what's come out of the counterculture doesn't seem to be ethical is is true but it's sort of um it doesn't take into consideration that those foundations themselves are deeply problematic uh well i mean problematic they're they're not necessarily ethical whether you say that's problematic or not i mean so so i mean that, that that's how i see it the delivery of individualized emergency care requires medical personnel experienced in the identification and handling of traumatized and overdosed people cardiopulmonary resuscitation the utilization of talk down therapy an effective system of patient triage administration of a flexible emergency treatment facility, pre-analysis of crowd dynamics, and a non-judgmental approach to drug treatment. This emergency medical treatment must be immediate. On-site instant medical care, a dash of mash, is an innovative and necessary component in medical practice. The need for flexible and mobile on-the-spot medical units keeps growing as crowds become larger and individuals become more susceptible to stress and the pressures of crowding. If this need is fulfilled, tragedies that occur in any crowd can be virtually eliminated. Um, in the book, as you have said previously, spirituality is foundational um, to a lot of the writing. Um, one of the things I found really interesting uh, was you talked about how a lot of the practitioners that came over in Europe, you know, you specifically describe a process of commodification that happens in their work absolutely i mean i think that the key thing and which would relate to something we talked about earlier is that certainly with the buddhists that came over like trungpa and in fact all of them shankar um, um mahesh maharishi yogi and the easiest thing to ditch is non-attachment so the idea uh, and also the ethics you know if you can just it's much it becomes a much easier package to sell for whatever reason you want to sell it whether you want to make a lot of money like the Mahesh Maharishi Yogi did or whether you're just interested in manipulating people for power or if you're just interested in you know the propagation of ideas I think that like Suzuki was for instance Suzuki you know it's in there and with Suzuki but you know a lot of criticism contemporary Buddhist criticism of Suzuki is that he, he twisted the message up well I'm not sure I agree with that but there's certainly a lot of them downplayed ethics I mean you have to look very hard in TM to discover ethics it's actually there quite strongly, uh, or, or, or non-attachments there quite strongly with the Hare Krishnas, with ISKCON. But, you know, that, that has its own problems in, in a different area. Right, yeah. Um, I'm just keeping on with 
the relationship between health and spirituality, it seems that now a lot of these practices and sort of health treatment more generally is kind of quite devoid of a kind of spiritual aspect. Um, seems like that's stripped out in most cases now. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and, and, and absent from contemporary mindfulness as well. I mean, you know, it's, you know, you know, even something like, like TM, I mean, you have to look quite far to find any kind of idea of spirituality. Could you just quickly explain what TM is for people that might not know? Yeah, sure. Well, um, TM, um, TM is uh, Transcendental Meditation. So it's just a very big, it's the Mahesh Marishi Yogi's style of meditation that he popularised largely by his connection to the Beatle and was is was absolutely massive and, and, and remains very large. And it just relies on, on the mantra. So the organisation gives you a mantra and you repeat the mantra twice a day for I think it's 20 minutes a day. And your mantra is secret to you and the person who gave it to you. It's very popular with celebrities. That's right. It's got a very famous kind of following. Right, right. So, uh, Russell Brand is, a, I think, a follower. Rupert Murdoch, I think, is a recent convert. David Lynch is the current supremo of, uh, which is interesting because Lynch's films come out of very much the sort of, you know, unconscious they're, they're all about those dimensions so it's almost like he he found his his his, his poison there well not his poison yeah and it, tm stands in as a good example of the kind of stripping out of spiritual ethical dimensions from um health wellness um and even meditative practices more broadly yeah um, uh it's um yeah i mean i think that it's one of those things where it, it certainly wasn't obvious to me. And certainly when I started writing the book, the connection, I, I, I literally had not considered spirituality at all. But I think when you, you know, the Buddha is is known as, you know, the, the doctor and obviously Jesus heals people. I mean, it's obviously in the mix, you know, with all of these things. But I just didn't realise when I started the book how absolutely fundamental it is. And for me, I think the way to sort of summarize it is that I think if you start thinking of your wellness or your sickness as being somehow a message, and I think that that's that's the kind of starting point for understanding in terms of spirituality. And I think if you if you keep following that exhaustively, the conclusions that you you come up up against are you couldn't they you couldn't be understand them in any other way as being spiritual experiences or spiritual understandings you know and it's something that you see a lot in the some of the areas that I find most interesting in the literature and in the the writing around health uh there's this idea of Stan Groff is brilliant idea of the spiritual emergency and you can and it's obviously that's obviously connected to Jung's idea of the dissolution of the ego and the reassemblage in the process of individuation. So basically, you know, the, the healing crisis or, you know, if it, if it precipitates and if it's allowed to run its course through mental illness or whatever, it can tend to lead to a state of ego dissolution. And from that, from like a phoenix from the ashes, you know, a new personality emerges from that. So the idea of sickness and spirituality, you know, there's a fundamental connection in that process. Yeah, and um, could you also explain this term, dissolution of the ego, um, and what you mean by that? I mean, my understanding of it is through Jung's idea um, of 
the encounter of the self, if that's if that's right. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. I mean, the encounter with the self is essentially, I mean, the the, the Hindu principle in the Vedanta is, I think, probably the neatest encapsulation, which is the idea that our consciousness or our sense of identity is a kind of an artificially segregated part of what is consciousness itself. And so, you know, they use the analogy that, um, you know, the air in a bottle is, is comparable to your sense of your own individual identity. And if you obviously take the lid off the bottle, that air becomes one with the rest of the air. People talk about ego loss in, with psychedelics a lot. Uh, it's a kind of the big sort of hallmarks of, you know, it's like a sort of, yo, I did it. I had ego loss. And actually, I, I'm not even that sceptical of it. I just think, you know, psychedelics have, have um, it's like a sort of bungee dump into the self. So you, you catapult into there. Sure, you, you have an ego loss. And actually, it's one of the advantages of psychedelics that they wear off. And, you, you know, the same patterns resolve. You know, the same formations that you are your identity generally tend to resolve i mean obviously there's a lot of cases where that's not exactly true people have negative experiences and also more complicated experiences of psychedelics for me the thing that people don't want to talk about or really like to talk about is is how mental illness and schizophrenia and all these states of mind are essentially inherently spiritual by their essence as well because they're they're, they're on the same dynamic and this is this was the conclusion that the anti-psychiatrists all came to essentially so lang and cooper and joe burke who i spoke to the book they, they all came to the conclusion that what in the east was called you know uh, you know a, a spiritual experience in the west is a uh, is a psychiatric experience so i mean the the analogy that i have to use of of this of, of how, it, how it's handled is that I think the experience of the self, it's a little bit like or, or how, how mental illness compares to the spirituality, the classic spiritual experiences. It's a little bit like the spirit, classic spirituality experience is, is somebody playing like a, a perfect D chord or something like that. And, and the psyche and the, the you know, the, the mental health experience is someone playing some kind of random selection of keys that don't. The sound is still coming through, but the prism and the experience of it is you know it's the, the tuning essentially is different and often that tuning is because people enter these psychiatric states of ego dissolution often because they're under tremendous stress you know they're on the, 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 they can be post-traumatic experiences they can be to do with you know, emotional you know problems that people are having they can be to do with you know um, malnutrition they can be to do with any number of things but that you know that that's that's how how they're distinguished from each other as i see it yeah and, and my understanding of the kind of encounter with the self is that um it has to be quite well managed for it to be productive in any way and it's not really the same as just kind of being re-traumatized by an experience it has you know it, it's um the young call it something like a kind of voyage into the night or something and yeah I, no i mean i just, I did think the way you were writing about psychedelics in the book was quite interesting. I really liked the um, the turn of phrase you use about the kind of um, the hiker getting to the top of the mountain versus the kind of tourist getting the cable car. And, you know, at the risk of sounding slightly kind of judgmental, I, I do think 
there is a very fundamental difference between, you know, you could potentially categorize a kind of uh, therapeutic experience as a kind of slow psychedelia, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's that what, you know, Jeanne described as, you know, that abaisement du niveau mental, you know, it's like going into the, you know, I think I use the analogy of a canal. You know, if you do psychedelics, you, you drain the canal, basically. Whereas if you're doing something like Jungian therapy, you you put on a uh, you put on a wetsuit, you put on a diver's outfit, and you get in there and you take out the shopping market trolleys. You look around there in the deep, and I think that I mean I have to be. I, my my general thing is I'm very I'm very skeptical of basically quite skeptical of psychedelics, and I I think with the current climate is there's such enthusiasm for them. I think that the, the industry and capital and you know is actually waking up to the value of psychedelics within its own context i think that you know that people we're going to see that a lot of people making money about out of psychedelics because i don't think i think psychedelics can definitely mean you know uh, in in, in graphs therapy which is i think psycholytic therapy you know it's used in conjunction with with her and you have low doses over a sort of a um, 40 50 sessions of, of psychotherapy and it's used as a tool and I can see something like that, that it's, you know, especially because I think a lot of people are not what they call labile and they're, they're not finding find, find it free to speak. They find it hard to express their emotions and they, hard, they, they people get very armoured. And I think trauma can get kind of locked in. And I think in, in that kind of circumstance, I think that, you know, it could be very useful. You know, it could be very useful to deal with PTSD. It could be useful to people who, who don't respond to therapy or, or who, who have you get stuck you know you know but my my gut feeling is that is is first that you know i think that these these techniques there's plenty of other techniques i mean psychedelics they want to claim the whole thing for their their own i mean you only have to read something like the road to elusis here which i'm just reading at the moment to see that they they want you know they, they want to have it all you have psychedelic people saying oh you know plato was a tripper and all that but the, all these ideas are there already without psychedelics and you don't need to take psychedelics to experience any of these things or to understand any of these things. I mean, you know, if you want to try, if you want to try a mantra, you know, for a long time, you'll, you know, that's a pretty, pretty fast track. That'll, that'll take you there. So I, 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 I am, I'm inherently wary of, of them. And I think just, so sorry, I'm ranting a little bit here, but I think there's that sense that what, what, what goes, what snaps out of place snaps back into place very quickly. So, um. Even in a calm environment, a patient on psychedelics can be completely freaked out by too much clinical equipment and is likely to look at an intravenous needle or catheter as if it is a snake that someone is trying to insert into his body. A person on a bad acid trip needs a calm, reassuring environment away from the crowd so that he can be sympathetically talked down massaged, and helped to complete his trip. The doctors here feel it is a rare case where a freakout cannot be calmed in a quiet room without the use of clinical equipment or medication. Um, a big current that runs through your book and the counterculture generally uh, are different types of psychology, um, sort of psychiatry, psychotherapy, psychoanalysis. Um, and I was wondering if you could uh, help kind of untangle some of the kind of core 
uh, types or kind of kinds of uh, those technologies that run through the counterculture? Sure. Well, it's psychotherapy is essentially the talking cure. And so Jung and Freud uh, and Adler is essentially the talking cure. And psychiatry is the use of drugs, medicines to do the brain. So so, so that's the primary, primary distinction. And there's, there's obviously lots of different, more recent innovations. So Reich was very interested in the body because, and he's obviously very important in the 60s as well, because he, he saw the armour, you could see it as like the, um, you know, the dysfunctional shapes that are, that, 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 the, that are held in the unconscious as being manifest in the body's position. So, so you know, Reich is a sort of, gave birth to a whole strand of, of what you call body work. And then there's the more recent I guess I'll just try and pick off the big ones. Psychotherapy has, which I mean, Jung is not psychotherapy, it's analytical psychology, but it's the same, especially the talking cure. That has as its fundamental idea, this idea of the unconscious, which if you dig deep into it, is essentially a kind of a religious idea. It, 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 it presumes things that, that are essentially, I, as I, I believe, religious. But then another big strand that when the... Um, the, the hippie fascination or the beat fascination with was was sort of at odds with the current dominant form, which was behavioralism, which basically sees it's like a sees the mind as a black box and it sees human behavior affecting emotional outcomes. So how you behave reflects your feelings and your your sense. That's obviously in polar opposition to the idea that things that are held in the subconscious are emanating down and affecting how you behave. So there's this big dynamic there. And obviously, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the recent strand, which is kind of dominates the therapy landscape today, is, is a sort of, sort of soft child of behavioralism, where you change your behavior, you, you look out for cues and you change your behavior, and that affects you know, your sense of well-being. So, so, so that's the kind of the kind of the menu and the counterculture, especially, you know, and I, I go back to Ginsburg. Ginsburg was an absolute therapy junkie, he was absolutely obsessed with Reich and Jung and Freud and and that idea of the unconscious. And that sort of sets the tenor for for all, all, all the sort of countercultural experiments. It seems like people uh, were really like quite in- interdisciplinary uh, and kind of pulled from different places and, um, you know, had these kind of hybrid approaches to mental health treatment and, and therapy. Um, and that sort of seems to be the case in therapy more generally now and mental health treatment now. Um, you know, it doesn't seem, it seems like people just kind of pull from all different kinds of uh, modalities and thinkers to do that kind of work. Is that a direct product of what took place in the cow culture or is that something else it's funny though isn't it because it, in th- you know i think that very often when you go to if you go to a therapist who says that they're you know you you'll you'll you can like you can end up with a very sort of pure cbt therapy but i think that a lot of like you say it is quite a sort of a mixed discipline and i think you could you could end up talking about your childhood and you know your unconscious you know problems i don't think you, you probably don't tend to talk about your dreams unless you're seeing a jungian i don't think it's the, the counterculture so much but i but there's obviously a big even still there's a big echo of that era in that media i mean it's a it's a kind of a stick that they used to beat each other with sometimes that you're countercultural or whatever and any 
any therapist that you go and visit will have a, a Buddha on the windowsill or on the table. It's like a fixture. And I, so I don't have anything wrong with that. But it's, it's so and mindfulness is, has been hybridized with CBT as well. I mean, there's so so and there's a sort of um, a lot of kind of secret Buddhism being practiced there. So I think it's just the way those these big currents of Eastern thought found a lot of sympathy with psychoanalysis. I mean, there's a lot of uh, evidence that Freud was you know very interested in the Kabbalah and Jung was obviously passionately interested in Buddhism and the Vedanta. Reich's work is basically chi so it's basically Taoism. you know it's all about energy flows i mean you know there's there's a there's a lot of literature on that a lot of these people you know are taking those ideas from from those areas anyway and sort of repurposing in fact reich sort of stumbled weirdly seemed to sort of stumble across the idea of chi without actually having researched it so it's kind of one of those sort of mysterious moments where you think wow perhaps it's really real so, yeah, I just think they're sort of, they're all sort of in bed with each other, those ideas. Yeah, and you, I, another important thing, I guess, is people are also using LSD in a therapeutic context, um, like in the work of people like Stan Groff, which seems to begin uh, in a very kind of controlled and safeguarded environment. But then as other people experiment with LSD as a kind of therapeutic tool, it you know, becomes this kind of chaotic uh, set of experiments and lots of people seem to, yeah, unleash things that maybe they rather not have done in that way. It's the agency of LSD, I think. It's just created, um, it was like sort of letting uh, letting something loose in, in many ways. I mean, a lot of these therapists became gurus. You know, I mean, Leary is a case in point you know, uh, intoxicated, you know, it, it goes hand in hand with inflation, LSD, you know, inflation being a manic sense of overextended ego. And LSD just does that to people. So I think that in a way that it was LSD that itself that that created that, that dynamic. And, 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 and I guess it's good to see that the therapy is much better regulated. Uh, and for the research for this book, you did uh, lots lots of interviews with people I, was there a kind of did you ever sort of slip into that sort of therapeutic dynamic when you were you know you're talking to people who have had you know quite traumatic or you know the kind of encounters with the self that were very uh, challenging or whatever. did you kind of slip into that dynamic at all when you're trying to understand those experiences in those interviews I mean there was definitely um I try to leave myself out of the book as much as possible, but definitely the process of researching it and writing it and meeting all these people, these kind of sort of psychic survivors was, you know, a challenging experience, you know, in the best way. Um, I, that's not something I go into really um, because I just, I'd sort of set out to write a social history and, and not sort of, um, you know, there's a little bit of like, I try a bit of this and I try a bit of that and I put a little bit of it in the book, but I just thought I didn't want to get into this being like a personal journey, but but it was very much, my own experience of it, yeah, was very much like that. And, it, you know, it's, it's, it's led me to, I keep reading at the same pace that I started reading for that. So I'm constantly processing and thinking about it. So yeah, it's been <coughs> a life-changing experience. I kind of stumbled, stumbled into it. And um yeah, the thing about all of them is they were all um, very 
one of the things that always made me laugh is how they all thought LSD was wonderful. They were all, yeah, it was great. It was amazing. You got it. But then it's so funny because it depends on what decade you ask people, you know, about their LSD experiences. I mean, you look at the interviews with Ram Das. If you ask him at some point, he'll say, oh, yes, it, uh, it kind of uh, slowed down my spiritual growth. You know, it had to, you know, I had to work out out of my medulla and, you know, and, and, um, and then you then five years later, he's saying something completely polar or the opposite. So, so I think it does slightly, and I think well, certainly when I was writing it, and I think probably still now, the enthusiasm for LSD is, 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 is so high that I think that, and, and for psychedelics is so high that I think that, that everybody felt like they were pioneers. Whereas, uh, you know, even some of the, the guy I went to see, um, Dr. David Smith, who set up the Height Ashbury Free Clinic, who's really a very important figure in, in the subject of the health he 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 was an alcoholic who then got into lsd stopped taking everything but then smoked pot for a long time but then i think his his biography that i read in the sort of early mid 80s is saying yeah he doesn't touch anything anymore doesn't touch anything but when i spoke to him he couldn't he didn't have anything better he, he was just you know was saying how magnificent his his experience on sandoz was um, and so, well, no, it wasn't. It was um, it was Owsley, Owsley Acid. And so, you know, I just, I think that, yeah, it, it changes. But that was funny in terms of, of, of speaking to the old the old lot. But yeah, life-changing. Had any of them, any of the people you interviewed kind of had, you know, kind of wholeheartedly kind of rejected their, their kind of uh, countercultural sort of heritage in any way? I mean, because like the cliche about the counterculture is that there's this sort of wave of optimism and it gives way to a kind of neurotic paranoia. and That's true. But they say, you know, once a hippie, always a hippie <laughs> right. as well. You know, And I think that this lot, the people that I spoke to and, and subsequently have all been, I think that I, I don't know whether it was because it was in the the, the the profiles of people I spoke to was, was very different in a sense because, you know, if you talk to, if you want to set out to speak to rock stars from the 60s, most of them would be dead. But because they were health people, they'd all, they'd all actually come out in a good nick. So I, partly it might have been to do that. I think if you'd asked, you know, I have, you know, family members who, who have, um, who came through the same period, who, who have nothing but, who just, detest the idea of LSD and just so against it who who, who took it at the time and you know really struggled afterwards so I think it depends who you speak to and I think a lot of the people I spoke to just didn't have any just thought it was wonderful and I think that, and to go back to my sort of one of my main things I think that I be I think it was largely to do with their decisions to all live kind of very ethical cooperative lives I think that's like that to go back to that analogy of hitting the piano hitting the wrong keys on the piano i think if you hit the right key the right chord you can cope with those those states of ego dissolution you can cope with the aftermath if you're just playing the right notes you know um and i think that we all chose to be in harmony i guess
A huge thank you to Matt for taking the time to talk about his book, which you can buy from any decent bookshop or directly from repeated books on their website. Um, I'll include a link to that in the description of the episode. On the next podcast, I'll be speaking with Gabriel Winnant about deindustrialization and the care economy in Rust Belt America. Um, And if you want to make sure you don't miss that, you can subscribe on whatever medium you use for your podcasts. If you have any thoughts or questions about this discussion, you can reach out at editorial at redmedicine.xyz. Finally, I'll add that if you want to support the podcast uh, and make sure it carries on, um, you can go to www.redmedicine.xyz and there'll be a link there where you can donate uh, a small amount of money which will go towards uh, books and research materials and any recording equipment. Uh, And finally, thanks for listening.